Welcome to Fire Headlines, where we cover the hottest topics in fire service news. I'm your host, Samantha Didion, and today I am joined by the panel, Chief Bob Horton and Chief Jeff Buchanan. Also joining us today is our first guest of 2024, Chief Rich Harvey. Rich is the fire chief for the Central Lyon County Fire Protection District in Northern Nevada and the Nevada representative to the Western Fire Chiefs Association. He has over 20 years' experience on incident management teams, including multiple assignments as an incident commander at the Type 1 level on some of the nation's largest and most complex wildfires, which will be coming in handy today because we are discussing historical wildfires and commanding Type 1 incidents. The Daily Dispatch recently shared two articles discussing anniversaries of historical fires. The first is the deadliest nightclub fire that happened on November 28, 1942, and the other being the Worcester Cold Storage Fire from December 3, 1999. Chief Harvey, we're going to bring you into the conversation right away. Can you talk to us about some of the key lessons the fire service learned from these historical fires? I think historical fires taught us pretty much about everything where we are today. Um, the fire service, you know, is 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 grounded in tradition and history, and going all the way back to the the first basic fire code, seventeen or sixteen thirty one, um, in Massachusetts, they passed a law that outlawed wooden wooden chimneys and thatch roofs. That was the introduction to the first lesson we learned. Right, um, these historic fires just teach us stuff. And they help us develop codes and practices to keep not only the public safe, but firefighters safe. Wildfires, as we all know, can happen anytime in any place. And, and I think history really shows us that. If you go back to like the Prestigo fire from 1871, um, and it was a large fire at the time, and, and it's starting to, to come full cycle now. That was a million acre fire. And now we're seeing million acre fires in northern Nevada, the August complex. We're seeing million acre fires with the Dixie fire in northern California. The right alignment, if you will, of fuel conditions, topography, drought, weather. And and when you get that alignment, those catastrophic fires have happened for years. They're still happening and they continue to happen to us tomorrow. Let's bring Bob and Jeff into this conversation as well. Jeff, what do you think are some key lessons learned from these fires? And what is your experience with large-scale fires? I'll jump in here, Samantha. Thanks for that. It's great to see you and Bob and Rich, great to see you too. I, I think one of the key takeaways from these historical fires is I think it it drives us in a direction of of innovation. And what I mean by that is necessity is the mother of invention. And And when you look at either from a wildfire standpoint, or when we get into the next article, really about locating firefighters. I think that these events, while tragic, help push us into a place of advancement. You know, in the wildfire space, there's lots and lots of technological advances being done in the area of early detection, trying to find fires more quickly so we can get the right resources out to extinguish the fire before they get to a million acres, which is just a crazy number. 
just an absolutely crazy number. For some reason, I, I just feel like it's necessary to put this into context. And I don't even know why I remember this silly little stat, but 640 acres is one square mile. So when you think about a million acres, I can't do the math that quick in my head. That's a big, big, it's big. It's just really big, right? So uh, I, I think that what what these historical fires do is it says, okay, we can't continue to keep having these fires grow to a million acres. How can we use resources in general, but technology specifically in order to, to drive us towards a solution more quickly? And so that's that, that's a big takeaway for me. I, I think it, again, while tragic, it helps highlight some of the challenges that we are still finding in the fire service particularly, and it, it drives really smart people to come up with more solutions. So that's that's a big takeaway. And historical fires, Samantha, help, you know, to Jeff's point, you know, re-engineer how buildings are, you know, the development of codes from uh, the fire that Rich had uh, cited early on all the way through what we're learning today, both in practice. But we, we also have the benefit in more of a modern era to create some of these environments in a laboratory space. So you have, you know, NIST researchers who are studying construction and building design to see if there's ways to slow fire spread, because the way you combat fires is, you know, through fire resistive materials in the construction process, uh, reduction of ignition sources, suppression, of course, is a piece of that puzzle. Uh, and, we, and we learn a lot. I mean, no chief shows up to work one day saying, I hope we've got get the historic fire that we can talk about. I, you know, Nobody wants to be the historic fire, uh, but it's a loss on the industry if we move past them and don't learn. So you know, a lot has come from it. Jeff hi- highlighted some of the technology. What seems to me to stand out, at least in, in my era, I've only been in the fire service about 23 years. Jeff and I are from Las Vegas. Well, Jeff lives in Las Vegas. I'm from Las Vegas. And the MGM fire sticks out in my mind of one of the earlier, quote, historical fires where I learned about uh, the effect of fire codes and the response of that of that time. But I want to kind of punt it back to Rich because it seems to stand out to me that many of these larger impact fires are heavily driven, whether wildfire or structure environment, is, is heavily driven by the wind. And that our our alarm should be going off as firefighters when we have you know, forecasted or particularly windy days. I don't know, Rich, if that's your experience or if you wanted to share anything about those conditions. Yeah, well, I I, I first like to echo Jeff's uh, uh, point in, in terms of innovation. Right, we talked about the first fire code in structure environment was 1631. The first wildland urban interface code came out in 2018. Um, so, you know, the, the wildland guys are a little slow on the uptake, but they're starting to realize what the structure guys have had is that having a plan, having codes, making sure that what we're building in the urban interface makes makes a lot of sense. Right. Because to your point, um, we are not going to be able to engineer the natural environment to a state where we're not going to get these fires. The fires are going to occur. Um, the window for the opportunity for those fires gets bigger, right? We, we know that the fire seasons are longer, um, which well, that's when I talk about the window being open, it's open longer. And then the longer you open the window, the more likely it is that the events will line up, wind, topography, all those factors, fuel moisture content, all those things that drive that extreme fire behavior, which contributes to firefighters difficulty in suppressing fires. I had a lady once tell me, 
um, after uh, the Cedar Fire down in, in, in San Diego. Firefighters are sometimes their own worst enemy because we have a success rate on wildland of 97, 98%. We catch 98% of those fires. So how then do you have a historical fire? There are those one or 2% that are forces of nature where things like hurricane force winds, what they just had in Maui, right? That, that the problem wasn't the size of the fire. The problem was the winds driving that fire and the fuels that were receptive to it. We're our own worst enemies because we feel defeated when a fire that's truly a force of nature does things that we think we should be able to stop. And, and that that's very difficult. And I think it's one of the, the toughest lessons to learn as a type one I see was to get kicked in the teeth and have to get up and go keep doing something to help protect the communities that are still downwind of that fire. It's a it's a it's a resilience thing. And firefighters have learned to become resilient. We've also learned to adapt our tactics. On fires like that, you cannot go direct. The old direct attack, one foot in the green, one foot in the black, and have at it, boys, with your shovels and chainsaws. We started to get a little bit slicker. Um, we're going indirect. And, you know, so we're backing up to a lot, the, what they call the right river, ridge, or road, where we can make a stand and have a chance to be successful. Um, we've also gone to more point protection strategies where we're like, all right, this fire is a mile or two miles wide. We cannot protect everything in that one or two miles, we'll prioritize the houses, we'll prioritize the infrastructure, and we'll, we'll try to make success. So firefighting, wildland and structure are constantly evolving in, in regards to what we see and what we can do. Technology also plays a role. Early detection, as, as Jeff mentioned, helps you get those boots on the ground quicker. Um, we're starting to get real-time data on what the fire is doing and where it's at. Um, and we're also starting to integrate education of the public because uh, when you look at like what Western Fire Chiefs is doing with their fire facing map, which basically to inform the public when they are at risk of a wildland fire, the quicker they're informed, the easier it is to get them out of the way of that fire and, and for the firefighters to be able to focus on, on fighting the fire, not just rescue people. So technology, is developing as a result of lessons learned in the past. To your point at the end there with the public outreach, are you seeing more community members wanting to be fire safe? And what I mean by that is maybe they're asking more about defensible space or firewise communities or things along those lines. Um, for sure. Um, and, and and I think the reasons are, are kind of multiple. A, those fires are making big news, right? Lots of lives are being affected. Lots of properties are being affected. Lots of economies are being affected, right? So the public has a, a justifiable awareness of the threat that wildfire poses, not just in the West, but across the United States. So once you become aware of a problem, how you go about solving it, right? And, and again, I don't know that this is a problem we're going to solve, but we can mitigate it becomes things like defensible space. And we know defensible space works. If you've ever driven to a major wildland fire, watch all the people out practicing defensible space around their homes when they see the big smoke column coming up. Fact of life, they know it works. And when we have the opportunity created by some of these bad events to create a dialogue to get people to do it before they see the smoke column, that's great. Um, another issue is that Defensible space is your property, one one parcel. 
So now we use FireWise communities, fire adapted communities, fire safe communities as a way to get the entire community involved because we've discovered that one property at risk puts everybody's property at risk. So it's not just an individual homeowner's responsibility. It's it's the community's responsibility to be safe. And we also have the obligation of our neighbors, the wildland owners, the forest service, the BLM, the states that own, own property adjacent to these communities. One of, one of Western's best spokesperson, uh, Frank Freevault, talks about the three mechanisms by which wildfires become problems to communities. Vegetation to vegetation, vegetation to construction, and construction to construction, right? The three areas we have to protect. We have to keep fires from the wildland from moving into the community. We have to protect the properties in the community, and then that structure-to-structure structure migration that goes on there. So the public plays a big role in, in, in how we're going to solve it. The fire departments, the districts also have a role. We're trying to get better at our response times, get more coordinated, get aircraft up quicker, get there faster. So it, it, it I kind of like the old bar fight analogy, right? Catch it when it's small and beat the crap out of it because you do not want it to get that head of steam. So the fire department's got to work on that, getting our response level up, getting our strength up so that when we do initial attack, we're successful. I'd like to jump in here for a second to uh, Samantha and just point out, and I know that Rich has been heavily involved in it. Bob's been very heavily involved in it. Frank Freevault is very heavily involved in it. Part of the reasons why people are becoming more accepting of, of these changes is like what Bob brought up in one of our prior, episode, prior episodes is economics. And what I mean by that is insurance agencies are making it very difficult, if not dropping certain carriers of you know, certain residents that butt up in the wildfire urban interface areas. And they're saying, you know what? We are not going to insure your property. We are not going to cover you in certain areas, which is a situation where, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? For most people, the most prized possession, the most, the largest investment they have is in their home. And now they have to protect it. So they have to do certain things in order to protect their investment. So um, I just think that that's an important piece to, to point out. And I'll also point out that there are certainly some insurance carriers that are taking full advantage of the situation. And I get it. They have a business model. They're trying to make money and they're not in the, they're not in the business of, of altruism. And while their mission may be good trying to help out people, they're also heavily involved in capitalism. I get that. But the point is, is that certain decisions that are being made are driving residences to adopt new policies and procedures. And, and really the moral to the story is hopefully we can get more messaging out where more residents will adhere to mitigation techniques, whether it's in defensible space, certain construction materials, or, or myriad other reasons or ways that you can uh, minimize the opportunity of losing your house in a wildfire. It's about being more preventative. It's about reducing more risk in the beginning and being less reactive. So I think that that's a, another yet important lesson to learn from, from every fire, not just historical fires, is the importance of reducing the risk of it ever taking place in the first place. 
I'll build on on Jeff a little bit because Samantha, there's this interesting point in a fire that people with riches experience and credentials are are far better prepared to explain than I am. But there's this moment in a fire where it's uh, well, firefighters will simply say or incident commanders will say to the operations section chief, are we going to get it? Are we going to get the fire? Meaning, are we going to stop it in its forward progress and uh, keep the loss to this particular area that they're focusing on? And the difference between you know, what we would call routine in the fire service, routine structure fire and what elevates to these historic fires we'll call a mega fire is we we miss the equilibrium where the resources and the conditions are aligned in such a way that we can quote get the fire we can we can stop its forward progress and when we get into these mega fire situations these you know the, the rate of spread is going to be greater in many cases you know wind driven than what firefighting resources are going to be able to contain in the fire grows and becomes big. And my point in mentioning that is that's a that's a hard pill for a local fire chief to swallow because we we want to portray we want to project into the community trust and confidence that your fire department's going to be there when you need us. But as fires grow and flip past this particular size, whatever it is, and it's different for each community and it's different for every conditions, there reaches a point where the fire department can't meet that meet what that goal or objective is and so imagine for a second the fire chief we when we were working together that you and i would have crafted a message samantha to go to the community and say community when you need us most we probably won't be there you're going to have to fend for yourself you know and and i think we need to deliver that message somehow as a fire service out to the community. And I think they are receptive to the notions of defensible space and whatever the the motivation is, whether it's self-protection, which we would hope they would do, or it's some kind of economic driver like Jeff brought up as their insurance industry is putting pressure on them to take mitigative action. But we're really to a point where there's this gap in expectations, particularly as fires grow big, where the fire department is having to adjust its strategy and tactics. And maybe Rich can explain a little bit what I'm trying, what I'm stumbling over to try to explain. But we really need communities to drive more ownership and accountability and being part of the solution. Preparing a community to not be a historic fire is a whole of community approach. And it's gonna be both preparation of the fire department, but also preparation of of the structures, preparation of evacuation plans and so on and so forth. And we, and we learned in Southern Oregon, it's not just from the wildland into the structures that one of those conditions Rich just pointed out from vegetation to construction, but we watched it just burn structure to structure to structure. So the, the, the point is, if the wind conditions are right, or, or in this case, wrong, that a city that may not feel like it's prone to a wildfire problem could have a wildfire push through its community, in which case then it becomes about evacuating and saving the most lives and so on and so forth. I don't know, Rich, do you think you could sort of explain like, you know, how how do you process some of that information and, and, and make decisions about where to try to stop a fire, where to let it burn and so on? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, one of the things, it, it's not just size, okay? Um, size is some of the most destructive fires in terms of life lost and, and structures lost have been relatively small. Um, you know, in my career, I think uh, Waldo Canyon fire, uh, 476 structures in a two or three hour period in the afternoon. It's a 15,000 acre fire. 
Um, you know, the next year we had the Dixie was a million acre fires. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's where the extreme fire behavior, where that rapid uh, spread it, 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 one way I would say it to, to you, Bob is when you're behind the power curve, you just don't have enough horsepower to, to generate it. Right. Um, and things aren't going well. It's windy enough that you can't fly air tankers. It's steep enough that you can't really drive in there and bring water to the fire. There's some kind of things that are kind of advantage fire and disadvantage firefighters, right? But we just don't have the ability to bring what we can to bear, whether that's the size or the speed with which it's moving, right? That's when you realize you're behind that power curve. And and that that's a bad feeling. You you know you, you you can kind of feel that the game is picking up speed and you have to do something. And that's where we fall back on you, you know um, prioritization, right? If you can't do the whole thing, do the best you can with the parts that you can. I, I remember talking to a fire chief one time, and I hope he's listening to this. Uh, it was in Bastrop, Texas, and the Bastrop, Texas fire destroyed about 2,000 homes in the, in the, in the, in the community of Bastrop. Um, fairly heavy timber type, um, timber and grass, fast moving fire. And all of Texas was in fire season. So resources were, availability was very, very uh, small. This guy had a fire start in his community. He had three or four fire trucks and that was it. All his mutual aid was committed on other fires. And he knew the fire was burning into a heavily residential area. And they made the decision to evacuate the people downwind of that because he didn't think he had enough resources to catch the fire. They went life safety first and they went and they moved every single resident out of the way of that fire, didn't lose a person. But to this day, a gentleman still thinks he should have maybe tried to attack that fire and put it out. And he knows he couldn't do it. In, in his mind, he knows that that was a not winnable decision, that the fire was going to get away from him. And then look at how that would play out if he'd made that decision. You would still have people in those homes when they burned. And, and that's probably the hardest thing. When you have scarce amount of resources and this incredibly aggressive fire, how do you deploy them to the best of your asset, your best of your ability? And, and you, you do it by priorities. You pick the places where you can win and 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 take that. And then, as I would call it, you connect the dots. You take the places where you could win. You take the places where you could do stuff. And then you start to tie them together so you can beat the whole beast. But, you you know, when you fall behind that power curve for whatever reason, um, it's a lot of work to get back out in front. But that's what we're here for. We, we, we try to figure out the places we can win and build off of those. Thank you for sharing that story. I have one final question. If you could, can you walk us through what it's like to be in IC during a type one incident? That's a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> you, you know, I, I'd like to point out that it's called an incident management team. And it's not like you're the IC that's sitting there with all the power in the world. You have a whole team, an ops section, a planning section, a finance section. You have all the firefighters on the ground. So, you know, realistically, your job as an IC is to set those objectives and set the tone. In, in the fire service, um, we talk a lot about leader's intent, right? And, and that's what an incident commander does. It's kind of more like a coach 
of of a team. You, you're not scoring any points. You're not throwing any passes. You, you, you know, you're you're setting an environment, creating an environment in which you can build relationships. Because most of those complex incidents, type one type of incidents, involve multiple jurisdictions, multiple point of views, multiple politics, multiple boundaries. All right. That's your job is to help get all those people on the same set of objectives, right? What is the highest priority? How are we going to go about doing that? And 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 so you you know you're 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 helping managing people, and then you just set that intent, you you know, and and you you've heard it in a bunch of different ways. We want to fight to fire aggressively. We want to provide for safety first. We want to make sure that we're we're respecting the resource values that are out there. You know, you you've got all these conflicting objectives and and, and trying to trying to put it out there. Um, and then I, I mentioned earlier. And I think that's the other part of leader's intent is that resiliency piece. Um, you know, when you get that fire, that one in a hundred fire, one in a million fire, when you get that fire, it's going to score some points. It is going to burn some houses. It is going to hurt some people. It is going to be impactful on that community for decades. And that kind of sucks. It it kind of feels like you lose. Um, because there's not a lot of satisfaction in catching it the day after it burned down 476 homes, but you, you have to do that and, and you have to find it. One of the hardest days I remember was the day after June 26th in Colorado Springs, the day after the Waldo Canyon fire hit the town of Colorado Springs, going to talk to the troops at zero six hundred telling them we had a good plan for the day and what it was and what we were going to go do. And, the, you know, that things were different today and it was advantage firefighters and let's go take advantage of it. And then driving across town to a public meeting with people severely impacted by that fire. And uh, the forest supervisor, Jerry Marr asked me, she goes, how are we feeling today? And I'll probably never forget that question. Because it was like you felt like shit. It was a bad day. And that's not the right answer. You're not allowed to feel like shit because you still got this fire out there and people are still looking to you to do your job, to lead your firefighters, to make sure that there's a plan and, and to try to minimize what happens bad today. And, and striking that balance between the reverence of knowing what happened and the optimism of having to still fight the fire is super difficult. Um, and, and that's really the challenge. It's not the strategies and the tactics. You, you know, it's not throwing dirt with a shovel. The hardest part about these mega fires, these historical fires, is the people and the impact that that fire has. And, and I, people is two prongs for me, the community those impacted and the firefighters impacted. You have to keep them both in the game. You have to keep them focused on the long-term. And I think that's where some of these codes come in, right? We learn those painful lessons. We do not want to repeat those painful lessons. And we want to put in place the best practices, the, the, the changes that we can do so that we don't have to do that. We also know it's going to happen. When the right conditions align, Bad things are going to happen to good people. 
And, and that's part of leadership too, is to try to minimize those using that expertise you've developed over the years. Thank you for sharing that, Chief Harvey. If any of our listeners have questions on defensible space, that information can be found in the weekly wildfire articles published by the Western Fire Chiefs Association. But thank you, Chiefs, for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. A link to the articles we discussed can be found in the show notes. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And if you have a question for the panel, please reach out to us at fireheadlines at wfca.com and let us know what's on your mind. We'll see you back here next week for more Fire Headlines. Thank you.